Amen. Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. This is God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, it's so good to be in your presence this morning with your people, to hear the voices of your people lifting up praises to your name. We would pray that our worship this day would be honoring and glorifying to you in every way. And for that to happen, we need continuously through this service for you to pour out the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon us. We need you even now to grant that spirit in great measure, to give us eyes to see the wonder and the beauty of your word, that scales might fall even from our eyes, that we who are blind might see, we who are dim in sight might gain clarity, that we might more wonderfully and more fully sing your praises. Would you come now in proportion to our need, knowing each and every soul here? Would you come and meet with us? And would you unfold for us the wonder of your saving grace as Paul speaks of it here to the church at Ephesus? Come now and meet with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, I'd love to just uh, start by saying to you, so many of you in this congregation, um, a word of of thanks to you. Um, Many of you have prayed for our family this week, and um, it's possible that you have sent me a text message or an email that I have yet to respond to, possibly even a phone call. Um, Many of you know our youngest daughter, uh, Lila, went in the hospital this week with um, serious respiratory uh, issues. She was fighting a RSV-like virus, if you're familiar with RSV and how it um, can especially be difficult for young children. Uh, Those of you who know little Lila, you know that she is Down syndrome. She is uh, two years old, and so her physiology is um, particularly susceptible to struggles such as this. And Um, When we found out on Wednesday afternoon that her oxygen levels were in the low 80s, we knew we needed to do something pretty fast. And so she was admitted into the hospital at Williamson Medical Center and praise the Lord for nurses and doctors and 
and uh, modern medicine. She is home this morning, and she is doing uh, quite well. I checked her oxygen levels before I left. We were able to get one of these, I don't know, you know, devices of some sort that tells us things about her health, and it said she was in the mid-90s this morning in her oxygen levels. That's a very good sign. So for those of you who, who didn't know, that's an update. For those of you who did, it's also an update, and also a thank you for your, your prayers. The Lord heard your prayers. And we're so grateful for those sweet nurses that took care of her and all of us at Williamson uh, Medical Center. There was one sweet nurse named Teresa who I was having a conversation with uh, after she'd been in the, the room for a while with little Lila. And she, little Lila was coming, really coming back to her spirits. Those of you who know her know how Smiley and, and joyful she is. She was not particularly joyful for several days there. And, and those smiles were coming back, and, and we were hugging on each other and loving on her. And uh, Teresa said something that stuck with me. She said, you know, it's in, sometimes in, in crisis, in, in trial, where you learn just how, how blessed you are, right? You probably, you probably know that too, don't you? Whether it's been a physical ailment that you faced or a crisis or a tragedy in your family or a near crisis or tragedy in your family where you said, wow, how blessed are we that the Lord has granted these gifts. And, and really, among them, right, the children that the Lord gives to us, the, the physical children, of course, but yes, the spiritual children, even within the body of Christ, the next generation of faith that the Lord is raising up. I think something of that is actually the spirit, you see, of the Apostle Paul as he writes this letter in Ephesians. He, he had loves this church. We talked about it last week. There are his children in the faith. He's raising them, so to speak, from afar as he writes this letter of Ephesians. And he wants them to know just how blessed they are because he knows how, well, how easy it is to forget it. How easy it is to forget that even this morning, as he tells us in this text, that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That God has held nothing back from us in Christ Jesus. He has poured out on us everything that, that we need. And sometimes it's in crisis, isn't it? Sometimes it's in times where we think, well, we don't have enough and that God's grace is not sufficient and that our resources are too little and we're wrecked with fear and anxiety. That's actually in those moments that the Lord comes back to us and we have fresh ears sometimes to hear where he says, hush, child, I've provided everything you need. I've provided everything you need. You see, the Ephesians needed to hear that. They, they're in Ephesus um, in this city, this great ancient city of of, um, of, of many re religions known well for um, the, the temple of Artemis there, one of the great wonders of the world. This ancient city uh, filled with um, a cosmopolitan um, hustle and bustle, uh, full of, of economic trade and um, commerce, a seaport city where, where many cultures came together as a kind of crossroads, a kind of melting pot. In this place, these small, tiny minority of Ephesian Christians are finding themselves under attack. They're finding themselves increasingly uh, persecuted 
and oppressed from the outside. You, you can read of it. We won't go into the details this morning. We'll, we'll speak of them more as we go through the letter of Ephesians, but you can read of it in some detail in Acts chapter 20. For you note takers, you might note Acts chapter 20 because it, it gives you a glimpse into Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. And you'll read of the sons of Sceva who were, who were um, prone to magic. Um, you'll read of the riot, riot in Ephesians against the Apostle Paul. You'll, you'll read of lots of things that went down in Ephesus. And it's quite clear that this, this minority Christian setting of the Ephesian church was one that was filled with challenge and oppression. And Paul is coming back to them and he's saying to them, listen, you may think that you are operating from a place of minority. <laughs> you may think that you're operating from a place of scarcity and lack of abundance. You may think that you don't have all that you need to face all of the challenges that are before you. I want you to know that you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's an amazing statement. And notice what he's doing. He's, he's lifting their eyes right off of the circumstances of their world and he's getting them on Christ. He's lifting up, as it were, each time. Isn't that what is happening when we come into the church every week together on Sunday? Is that we've been so glutted with the things of the world day in and day out. We have all kinds of cares and burdens that are on our, on our heart. There's so many things speaking at us that we are not enough, we don't have enough, and the wheels are coming off. And there is good evidence for those things, isn't there? When all we're looking at is in the horizontal plane of the things of the world. And when you come into the house of the Lord, the psalmist says that the Lord makes things plain to us. He makes it clear to us what is really true, what is, what is behind the veil, so to speak, of this world. The spiritual truths that are the real truths, the, the, the fundamental truths of our identity and our, and our, per, our personhood, our hope and our future. And he says, I want you to know that right now, I have given you every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Now, I just want you to sit in that for a minute because I think some of us in this room think, I will finally get the blessing that I need when I get to heaven. Like then the blessing will really come. Well, I don't have everything I need here, but you know, God will somehow get me through by the skin of my teeth. This sort of mentality that we're just barely cutting it, we're barely getting it through. Oh, if he could just give me... You know, bread and water, then I'll be sufficient. You know, if he just, and he's saying, all of heaven is made available to you in Christ Jesus. Let me, let me say it, I think, in the strength of the Apostle Paul here. There is no blessing in heaven that you do not now have in Christ Jesus. There's no blessing that you will one day in its fullest form have in heaven that you do not now have at your disposal in Christ Jesus. That's what he's saying to you this morning. You, you have... You, you have a, a blamelessness, as we learn in this text. You have a holiness that we learn in this text that's in Christ. You have a new relationship with the Father that's in this text. You, you have all of the love of God and all of the riches and the inheritance of Christ at your disposal right now in Christ Jesus for all who have trusted in Him. Every spiritual blessing is yours. I just want you for a moment to ponder the fact that you probably haven't lived with a sense of the wealth that is yours this week. You've, you've probably lived out of a mindset of scarcity rather than a mindset of abundance. And spiritually, he wants to press that in upon the church at Ephesus. He says, I want you to know you're going to feel in this world that this is the case. But let me tell you what's really true. You have every spiritual blessing. 
in Christ Jesus. That really is the theme, really, of this text. If you'll see it there in verse, in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the way that Paul says it there. Blessed to be. It's a, it's a, it's a statement of what the scholars would, would call a doxology. It's a statement of praise and worship. That's how Paul launches into this, this content of the letter. He, he doesn't even say anything yet, and he's already worshiping. Because his mind is overflowing with the fullness of the grace of God. He says, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we should ask the question, Paul, why are you blessing the Lord? Why are you praising the Lord? Here's why. For he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's why I'm praising God. He's blessed us, his people, with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, three times he uses the word blessed there in verse 3. He's introducing the theme that he wants to carry along with us in the text. In fact, in this long sentence. You, you won't believe this, but because in your English text, verses 3 to verse 14 in Ephesians 1 is probably, depending on how your editors edited the text in the translation, probably five or six sentences, somewhere in there. But it's in the Greek, it's one long sentence. It's one long sentence. It's as, if, it's as if the apostle Paul is just piling up the phrases and the clauses and, and the content of the gospel, and he's so spilling over, he can't even put a period down. He's just, he's just speaking all, just out of the overflow of the sense of God's love and grace here. It's one long sentence. Now, your, your fourth grade English teacher would be very upset with you if you had written verses 3 to verse 14 with one sentence, am I not correct in that? Yes, you would have corrected that. They would have edited that. The Apostle Paul here is giving us a gospel grammar, though. He's giving to us the kind of overflow of the soul that comes when you're swept up by the Holy Spirit, been given a pen to inscribe the very words of God. He says, I want you to know that I'm launching into this letter with praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. It's an incredible sentence. It's an incredible statement from the Apostle Paul that we have right now in Christ all that we need. Now, we'll be able to circle back over that truth again and again and again in the first three chapters of Ephesians because the Apostle Paul, if he says something once, he says something ten times in part because he loves to stir us up by way of reminder. He knows how important it is that we hear things over and over and over and over again. But there should be, there should be something in this first verse of Ephesians chapter 3 when he says, every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ Jesus right now in the heavenly places where Jesus is. You're positionally there with Jesus right now. You're in him. And you've got every spiritual blessing that Jesus himself has at the right hand of the Father. And something in you should be saying, so what are those blessings? Right? What are those blessings? Could you enumerate those blessings? It's one thing to tell me, you're blessed. And you go, okay. Could you unpack that blessing for me? And Paul says, gladly. 
gladly, I would love to unpack for you the blessings that are your in Christ Jesus. Now, we're going to start this discussion today, and we'll continue it into next week, and then, yes, even one more week before we get to verse 14, which is the very end of the first sentence of the book of Ephesians. So you're going to have several weeks on this one sentence of the Apostle Paul, but I want you to see three, very briefly, I want you to see three blessings that are given to us here in this text that Paul enumerates in these first uh, three verses, verses three through six. I want you to see that we are chosen in Christ. That's blessing number one. I want you to see we are sanctified in Christ. That's blessing number two. And I want you to see that we are sons and daughters in Christ. That's blessing number three. Now they're all tied very deeply all together in this text, but, but I want to see you see how Paul enumerates them. We are chosen in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. We are sons and daughters in Christ. Let's start with this very first blessing that, that is ours in Christ. Notice how Paul writes it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here it is. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. The first blessing that extends from what Paul would call and what scholars call union with Christ. By being in Christ. All of our identity and self in Him. The first blessing that comes off of Paul's lips is the blessing of election. That He has chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now, there is something of an irony in that, isn't there? Because as I said the word election a minute ago, some of you in this room shimmered just a little bit. And some of you go, I wonder what this means. I wonder what he's going to say. When God chose us, God elected us, I wonder what this Doctrine entails because I have confusion around it. That would be understandable. I have concerns around it. That would be understandable too. Some of us may be decidedly opposed to any notion of the Lord's electing grace or His choosing of us. That, that also can be understandable. All, all of that is a real reality as we approach this particular doctrine. But I want you to pause before we even get into it, and I want you to notice something that about the Apostle Paul here. He thinks it's a blessing. Let's just note that from the very beginning. It's not just a matter of philosophical complexity. It's not, a, it's not something to debate. It's not, it's not something to be concerned about or simply to be confused about. What does the Apostle Paul think of it? He thinks it's a blessing. Now, what you should be asking then, why does he think it's a blessing? Why, why does he think it's a blessing? And if he thinks it's, it's a blessing, maybe I should consider what it would mean for me to think of it as a blessing. How, how could I get to a place where I could understand God's choosing grace, God's electing grace, as spoken of here in the text, as a blessing from the Lord? And we're going to look at it in just... That way a bit, to understand who we are in relationship to God's choosing grace. Now, this will be one shot at it. 
We'll have another shot when we get to verse 11. Some of you have your Bibles open. I always commend that, you know, as we're looking at the text together because sometimes looking at the verses before and behind can be really, or, or be a little later in the, in the text can be really helpful. And you'll see that in verse 11 of the text, so in just a couple of weeks, we'll be, we'll be in a section that also says this, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. Well, this idea of election or choosing and predestination go hand in hand. And so we're going to hit it again. So if today you don't get all of your questions answered about election, we'll get another shot in a couple of weeks. I want you to see why Paul believes today that the election of God, his choosing grace of us is a blessing. And it's, this is the reason that Paul knows that the only way anyone will ever be saved in the world is if God makes the first move. That's what the Apostle Paul believes wholeheartedly and knows that the only way that anyone will ever be saved in the world is if God makes the first move. Now, why is that the case? Well, earlier in our service, you know, we're memorizing together Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 during this season of, of Lent. And so we're going to use Ephesians 2 a lot, maybe every week, of, of the Lenten season for confession to sort of ingrain it into our minds. Well, you confessed a minute ago that we are a people who are dead in our transgressions and sins. I mean, that's what we confessed a minute ago, the straight words from the Apostle Paul, that we are a people who are spiritually dead in our trespasses and our sins. As one theologian put it, we are literally born into the world dead on arrival, spiritually speaking. The inclination of our hearts are towards sin, we are held captive in the reality of sin. We are spiritually unawakened and unenlightened. We are a people who by nature move towards the grave. Have you noticed as parents that you don't have to train your children in sin? Have you noticed it comes really naturally? Parents, have you noticed it comes naturally for you too? Yes. Do you notice the training needs to be in a different direction? In the direction of commandment keeping and obeying. That's because spiritually we're on a bent towards death. And the reality of deadness in the spiritual sense by the Apostle Paul here is the assumption behind that that dead people don't do anything. They're not just weakened. They're incapable. Like there's nothing within us to be able to choose, to love, to follow God apart from God making the first move on us. Apart from God coming to us and awakening us. Apart from God bringing us back from the spiritual graveyard. Apart from the Lord coming and doing what the scripture will refer to as regeneration. Bringing us again to life. That's the Apostle Paul's assumption. That the very beginning of salvation is the fact that God has chose you in Him because you could never choose Him first. We love God because He first loved us. He first loved us. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. 
He wants you to know that this is an incredible blessing. Do you know if this blessing was not in your life, there would be no way for you to be saved. If he had not laid hold of you before the foundation of the world, notice that phrase, before the foundation of the world, before you were ever existed, before you ever did anything good or bad, he had set his love upon you. He's assuring these Ephesians of the eternal and enduring love of God that he has chosen them from before the foundation of the world. He wants them to know that in one sense they were saved the moment that they professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in time and space and history. That's the moment where they truly experienced the reality of salvation in Christ, the moment they exercised faith. But in another sense... They were saved from before the foundation of the world. For God himself in his perfect decree had laid hold of them long before they ever laid hold of him. Notice in verse 5 the language the Apostle Paul uses. In love he predestined them. In love he predestined them. That's what drove him. All of grace and kindness is the focus of his electing love. Now, Every single one of us wants to ask the question. There's a, well, let's say not just the question. There's the five questions. There's the seven. There's the ten questions we want to ask at this particular point. Let me just ask one or two that are in our minds this morning. Why did he love those whom he chose? I think that's one question that we ask. Why did he love those whom he chose? And the answer the Bible gives is that he loves us according to the purpose of his will. That's the answer the Bible gives us. He loves us because he loves us. That's the answer that the Bible gives us. He plans in and through us by virtue of his love to show forth his glory, as we'll see. We will be, we will be those instruments by which he uses to show forth his glory. Now, he loves us because he loves us. Now, for some of you in this room, you're like, oh. For those of you in this room, go, I'm suspicious. I'm suspicious. It lands on you different ways, doesn't it? I'm suspicious. We continue to ask, surely that can be the case. Surely that can be the only answer to this. And I actually appreciate that question because in a sense, that's not the only answer. In a sense, that's not the only answer. He, he loves us. It leads his love for us is what drives his electing grace. But, but there's a sense, even in this text, right, that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. That there are reasons and understandings and wisdoms and purposes that we as his people aren't privy to. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are, well, not our thoughts. His purposes are inscrutable, unfathomable, the prophets say, are his ways. If you find at times there are truths in the scripture that you understand to a degree, and then you get to a place where you're like beyond the pale of your mental capacities, welcome to the study of God. The first principle in theology is the incomprehensibility of God. If you, the finite, truly have comprehended God, know this, it's not God you've comprehended. It's some fashioning of God that you've comprehended in your mind. C.H. Virgin said when we get to places where 
Our minds have exhausted their resources and efforts in understanding God or the truths of which God has revealed. He says, at those moments, you should consider yourself have made it to an altar by which you can bow and worship. Part of what is happening when we study the electing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the electing grace of the, the Father that is, that is ours is that we get to the end of our capacities. There is a purpose of His will that is beyond our capacities. And yet, we know that as we look over the course of the Scriptures, what He tells us is, I have saved you because I've loved you. I have saved you for the purposes of my glory. I have saved you so that you will praise me. Isn't that ultimately where the Apostle Paul goes in this text? That we would praise him to the praise of his glorious grace, which is ours in the beloved, right? Now, I want you to, I want you to set aside for a second. I'm, we're going to pick them up in a couple of weeks, and I'll probably write on it and talk about it in a bunch of different ways to try to help us understand this incredibly important blessing that the Apostle Paul is speaking us to us here. But let's put away for a second all of the really important, really important questions that we have about this doctrine, which are, what does this mean about those who don't come to knowledge of Christ and are saved? What does this mean about those who are not chosen? What does this mean about my family members? What does this mean about all of those questions? Do you have those questions? I have those questions. Let's set all of that aside for just a second, and let's just remember the context of the passage. Why is Paul unfolding this text for us in this way? He wants the Ephesians to know that in the midst of their crisis and trial, as a beleaguered and persecuted people, who would have questions about the love of God, who would have questions about whether God is still with them and cares for them, who have questions whether they can be sustained, who have questions about God's plan as they experience all kinds of heartache and pain. He says, I want you to know that he chose you before the foundation of the world. He's not asking you to speculate about other people. He's asking you to hear that as a personal word of encouragement and blessing to you. That's how you're supposed to hear it. In the midst of all of your crisis, he chose you. Is he going going to renege on his plan and decree? Is he going to fall short of the care and the love that he has set upon you from eternity past? No, you can trust him. You can trust him. His grace was set upon you before the foundation of the world, church at Ephesus. You have every reason to be confident in the face of incredible crisis and turmoil. That's how he wants it to register in your heart. Do you know if you can actually receive it that way, it begins to be something that's an incredible blessing to you. You know, we're making choices, right, all of the time, aren't we? And you know that every time you make a choice, you, for one thing, you necessarily exclude all kinds of other things. It's the nature of decision-making. It's the nature of the way the world's actually made the thing. What he wants you to see is that God in his grace chose you, not because of anything that you've done, not because of any pedigree that you carry, not because of any degrees on your wall, not because of any goodness that you've performed, not because of, of any heritage that you come from. He did it from before the foundation of the world. Before you ever existed, he said his love upon you. And he supposed what we should what we should experience in the richness of that truth is that we have nothing to fear. 
The will of God has chosen. His grace has been poured out. Do do you know this is essentially what Israel themselves learned from God? You might think to yourself, oh, well, this electing thing and this this loving thing from 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 particular people, uh, this, this, must, this must just be a New Testament thing. Well, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. When he's speaking to Israel, notice what the Lord says. It says, the Lord God has chosen you. That language is sound familiar at this point. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Now, do you notice what he's saying there? Think of a husband here for a second, just so you can put this in perspective. When I chose Christy, I was choosing her among all of the women in the world. Now, that is not to say (laughs) that all the women in the world had an interest in yours truly or were an option. It is to say that my heart and affection have been set upon Christy. I chose her out of all of the women, so to speak, of the world. Now, in that moment, we could say, well, what about those, that, that woman over there? That's not that moment. That's not that moment, you see. That moment is about Christy. It's about this woman. That his, his love has been set on her, right? That's what God is saying here to Israel. I have set my love upon you out of all the people on the earth. And you go, oh, they must be amazing people. <laughs> It was not, God says, because you were more in number than all of them. But it was because the Lord set his love on you. For you were fewest of all the peoples. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were strong, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, by human standards. In fact, you were the fewest of all the peoples. But I chose you, and here it is, because I love you. Because I love you. Now, I will just say there's something in the heart, especially when we pair it to marriage and and other types of love specifically, that there are reasons that the heart has that we cannot in one sense discern. There is a depth of, of drawnness and of love that is mysterious in its nature. And let me tell you, though ours is sinful and fallen and often capricious in a number of ways, The Lord, our God, is perfectly holy and right in all that he does in Jesus. Even when we question it and wonder it, know this, the problem is not with him, the problem is with us. The problem is with our inability to see it, to ascertain it. And when this doctrine actually troubles us, when the Apostle Paul says it should be a blessing to us, it means that we need to see it the way it's intended. We need to see it the way God has intended it, for it to be a blessing to us. Now, some of you have said, You've thought in your mind, well, I still think that it's because some people he just likes you know, more than others because they're better or something or whatever. Well, n- notice even what the text tells us. It tells us that we have the blessing of election, but we have the blessing of sanctification. This comes in Christ. Notice how it's written, verse 4, even as you chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. What's the purpose of our election, that we would be sanctified. That's what he says. In order that you would be holy and blameless. So in other words, it is not your holy and blamelessness that causes God to elect you. Your your goodness, in other words. 
It is the sheerness of his grace poured out on us that actually then creates within us holiness. It creates within us holiness. You become, by virtue of the grace that the Lord has set in your life, holy and blameless. There's a direction to the nature of it. That sanctification and growth more into the likeness of Jesus doesn't come because we already were pretty cleaned up. And so he said, yeah, I think I'll take you. It was that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. And God, by his kindness and grace, extends that grace to his people. He chooses them, and in choosing them, he grows them in to his blamelessness and his holiness. It's an incredible blessing. He says, this blessing is yours, Ephesians. So as you're going through these trials, I want you to know, God has a blessing of sanctification in store for you. He actually disciplines those whom he loves. As they walk through trials and and difficulties, he purifies by burning away the dross and, and crystallizing and honing and purifying the gold. That's what he does. That's the work that he does. Know that as his son and as his daughter, he's after your sanctification. He's after your growth. That you would be spotless. That's what blamelessness means. You'd be without spot. And that you'd be holy internally. That you would have, you would have the full character of Christ. Now some of you are saying to yourself, well, there's a long way. Boy, we got a ways to go in, in that. Well, notice how he's speaking about it. He's speaking about it in Christ. He's not at this moment talking about your own personal growth in those things. He's talking about the fact that right now you have those things. Credited and charged to your account. By virtue of Christ being at the right hand of the Father and you being found in Him. They are yours right now. They're possessions that you have. You are holy and blameless before God. By virtue of what Christ has done. You can see all of these things are graces. And, he's, and now here's what's marvelous about this, right? Not only does he, as it were, give you a clean record. You're holy and blameless before the Lord. He could have done that in kind of a legal way, right? By, by Jesus taking on the penalty of our sin on the cross, nailing it to the cross, removing it from us. And then the great exchange, Jesus giving to us his righteousness that we're cloaked in it. We're full in his holiness. That's what we have. And he could have said, okay, now go along your way. I've cleaned you up. I've done those things for you. I've cleaned you up. Now go along your way. Notice a deeper blessing, he says here. A deeper blessing. He says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, when you read this language of of adoption, I think understanding it in the the, the language of of the Scripture here is to say that He wants not merely to see you holy and blameless. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants you to be a part of His family. He wants you to take on His name and the fullness of his character. He wants all of his inheritance to be at your disposal. All the things that he's going to unpack later here in Ephesians chapter 1, he wants you to know that it's not just about getting you cleaned up. I think sometimes we think of God in that way, don't we? Oh, well, you know, we are just a cosmic project that he is working on. You know, I saved you to get you cleaned up. My goodness, you're messy. That's sort of how we think of him very often. Notice there was a way for that. That's not how it is in the, in the text. We're not a project that he's working on. We're a people 
that he loves. And in love, he wants us to become who it is he's made us to be. In love, he wants to draw us into his family and give us the name Christian. To give us all the inheritance of the Lord Jesus Christ at our disposal. That we would know what it was like to be a part of the family of God. Notice the language of adoption. That's a very important term. We'll go in more to its details later. But but how does adoption work? Well, what does adoption imply? Let's start there. Adoption implies that you weren't born into this state. Notice that. Right? Some of us think we were born as God's gift to mankind. But but that's not the, the teaching of Scripture, you understand. You were born dead in your trespasses and sins. So He has made you alive and adopted you. He's brought you outside, inside His family. You were outside. You, were, you, were, you especially, you Ephesians, you're Gentiles. The covenant promises that were extended to Israel were not inherited by the bloodline that you come from. You've been brought in. You've been grafted in. He uses that language in Romans. You were of a different, as it were, wild olive branch. And we've grafted you in. We've made you a part of all of the covenant promises of God. You now are a part of the family. You've been adopted into the very family of God. You know, I think, I think also, I mean, just the way we tend to, right? Just remember this when it comes to the Bible. It's easy for us to reason from the bottom up to God, meaning to say how we experience life, we think that it must be like that for God, or that must be the way that it is for God. Just notice you're going to run into all kinds of errors when that's the case. The Bible is helping us reason from the top down. It's helping us get into the very heart and mind of God so that it will become a light and reflect upon all of our circumstances and experiences here so that we can see them truly. So it's very easy, that's why when I say, it's very easy, parents in here, to look at your children or relate to your children like they're like little projects that you are to get raised up and cleaned up so that they become little citizens in the world that will be profitable and and helpful. And, And our children sometimes know them when we're treating them that way, right? They get the feeling like, okay, if I do really good, mom and dad will love me here, right? They get, they get that sins. They carry along a kind of implicit works righteousness notion. Now, I mean, they, in one sense, they know, yeah, dad and mom love me, but I know that they really love me when, fill in the blank. And we will tend to think that God must do that too. Well, God doesn't. Now, the reason God doesn't do that that way is because you do it that way and I do it that way because we're sinful. We're fallen. And we actually make other people more about us. Right? That's essentially what we're doing with our with our children when we do that, right? When we when we are raising them up to say something more about us. Or out of convenience. I know no parent in here would ever do this. I, I know Nate would never do this. Um to, to discipline out of, out, of the, out of frustration or out of a, a lack of convenience of saying, you know, really, you're just bothering me, so I'm disciplining you, which means that my discipline of you is about me. It's about what I want. It's not about what the child needs. It's not about their love. Sometimes we don't discipline because we're too lazy, because it's about us. Sometimes we discipline because we're angry, because it's about us. You see, God never does that. 
God never does that. He loves us with a pure and holy love. He only relates to us in ways that are good for us, in the building us up and in the inducing and the drawing close to us in his love. He has a pure love for his people. He loves us with the love by which he loves even his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What an incredible thought that is. Do you believe, test your heart, do you believe that that God the Father loves you with the very love by which he loves his own son, even Jesus Christ? If you find that scarcely, well, even impossible to believe, just know you've not even begun to understand to plumb the depths of the gospel. Because that's exactly how he loves you. In fact, there's no other way that he can love you but in that way. That would be the holy and pure love of God in and through Christ Jesus for you. Now, when you know that you are that secure in the love of the Lord, you know what begins to happen? Well, changes begin to happen in your life. All kinds of changes begin to happen. And Paul's going to go into more of those. But I want you to see the first change that comes into our life. Notice what he says there in verse 6. Why does all of this happen? Why is he doing all this? Why does he choose us? Why does he sanctify us? Why does he draw us into his family? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He returns to blessing here at the end, doesn't he? Why, why do you think that he has drawn you into relationship and into fellowship with himself? Why, why has he sanctified you in Christ Jesus? Why has he chose you from before the foundation of the world? That he would be praised. That he would be praised. That his glory would be known. Do you see, when you are sensing in the love of God and the power of His grace rising up within you that you actually want to sing, you actually want to pray, you actually want to obey, you actually want to do the things that He's called you to do, when you feel that rising up within you and then you follow actually through with that which He calls you out of the grace of His love, do you know what is actually happening? You're fulfilling what the Apostle Paul says is the very purpose of your salvation. Do you see at the end, here's what's amazing, is that when you are truly saved, increasingly you don't make things just about your salvation. You make it about the one who saved you. More and more you're enamored with him. More and more you're amazed at him. More and more you glory in him. More and more you want to become like him. More and more you want to follow him. Wherever it is that he would call, you say to your heart over and over, if he has loved me such as this, all I want to do is stare at him and follow him and become like him. Because he is the greatest, the holiest, the most loving being in all of the earth. You see, if that is beginning to happen in your heart in even the smallest measure, I want you to know that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying should happen. That the beginning place in all of these rich doctrines is to bring us back to the heart of worship for the glory of God. I pray today that you have tasted with me the richness of just a handful of these blessings that are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we together can go deeper into them as we study this marvelous letter. Father in heaven, we would pray that these spiritual blessings, every single one of them, would increasingly dawn upon our hearts afresh. Lord, would you today renew our hearts in the truth of this, your word. Would you cause us to have better understanding, better clarity over the complexity of some of the doctrines that most easily concern us. Lord, would you grow us in your wisdom and would you cause us in that growth 
to follow you and to find that the praise of you is always on our lips. We'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.